to another to another episode of the Hip Hop Social Worker Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Scott, and today I have a special guest all the way from Iowa. Uh, we connected on Twitter, and uh, he's definitely you know a person who's has a pretty big influence on Twitter. I see him, uh, you know, uh, I get lost in those threads sometimes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so excuse I, me I, if I'm not as present as uh, you know I should be, but. I definitely do get lost. There's a lot of information coming through. But uh, are, are you uh, P- Professor Cummings, Professor Stephen Stephen Cummings? Yeah, it gets it gets convoluted. Yeah, I saw a Professor. So Professor Cummings is the title. Uh, I can give you the background on that because usually when you say professor, there's a lot of implication about that. Uh, specifically, it's clinical professor. Okay. Since I'm coming in from practice, so unlike colleagues I've I work with who have gone straight through the uh, academy where they work towards their PhD and they are doing their work there and then they do their postdoc or move into a, into a tenure track position and they work towards that. I did not do that. I, my terminal degree is master's of social work. I earned that in 2002 at the university of Iowa. And I didn't think about being, I, I being a professor was not on my radar plan of mine necessarily. I went into hospital social work in 2002 after I graduated. I did two internships or two. I did my foundation and advanced practicum in hospital social work. And that was my vision for practice. I was just going to do that for my career. Yeah. And did a lot of that. Did that for 10 years. And then the opportunity to become a clinical uh, professor became, uh, just showed up. And I realized it was something I really wanted to do. Okay. So, all right. So you started. You still. You started in the hospitals, or did you like? So let's. Let's. Uh. How did you get like to that decision to become a master's of social work? Oh, it's a story. Um, I often. I'll just share the brief version of this. But I got my undergrad in elementary education. I wanted to work with people with special needs, and that was my original focus back in. Uh, when I started my undergraduate program in the end. 1989. And I didn't think about social work at all until like the mid part of uh, the 90s. Uh, After I graduated with my undergrad degree, my wife Sherry and I went over to Japan. We taught English there for a few years. Mm -hmm. That was just a thing to do. Uh, We were still in our early 20s. And the exposure there was setting the stage for social work for me because I had this experience of being outside my, my everything to being in that place for a while. And I love Japan. It was complicated some of the time. Came back here and worked with people with disabilities at an agency where I'm at right now. And my mentor and supervisor there, Becky, she just said, you know, what you're doing is social work. And if you're interested in a graduate degree, which I had been suggesting that, she said, you really should think about masters of social work because that fits everything that you are talking about right now with the work you're doing here at this agency. So that got me on that path. And then she also... Uh, embedded the idea of hospital social work because of the multiple systems in action. There's the macro part portion, there's the meso portion of the interior of the hospital system, and then there's the micro, which is you're working with individuals and families in a pretty significant moment of their lives, often with trauma. And all of that really appealed to me. Mm-hmm. So off to school I went, got the work towards the degree, and fortunately where I also where I live, I also have uh, we also have a Trauma One Hospital here, and that's where I got my experience. And so for many years there, well, I should say all of this fits within a decade. Yeah. So the decade that I worked there, 
most of my time was either in emergency treatment uh, or inpatient psychiatry or surgical intensive care. And so a lot of people coming in with life-changing trauma events and to life as part of that conversation. I worked with families who are who who lost loved ones while they were in the OR. Oh. And I would get a call, like, hey Steve, you know, we got some bad news. Family's waiting in the waiting room and their their loved one isn't gonna make it. And we already know this. So we need you to come and help with all of this, which you know, as a social worker, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So got got in with that. I also helped out with the Iowa Organ Donor Program and served as sort of like on the side with that as part of my role in the hospital. So I would cover uh, the pager for that. So if a case was identified as a potential need for um, organ donation transplant, I was called in to work with families again, uh, address the needs that they have, see what questions they have as we work towards potential decisions in that area. So that is that all kind of came together, but it started out with just one person saying to me, this sounds like something you'd be interested in. Did you even think about that? I had no concept for social work other than just the usual, you know, bad messages we often get in media um, when I was in my yeah. undergraduate program. So fortunately, and, I, and this is why I always think about this, I, I just had great contact with people, you know, with one person when it came down to it, who said, this is what you're working towards. And I think this would be a good fit for you. And I, and I took that to heart. Okay. So um, how did you deal with, like, um, having, to, having to, like, deliver that bad news? Like, uh, I feel like, think, like thinking about getting into hospital social work um, and, like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I've thought about it sometimes. I actually I actually did, I actually did, um, I actually still do a work at a psychiatric mm-hmm. hospital. But, like, yeah. but, like, as far as, like, um, you know, having to deliver that, that awful news and, you know, how did you deal with, like, the burden of that? Yeah, good question. And so ethically, first of all, I should put out there that we, and specifically myself, I was never asked to deliver the news. Okay. That was still the responsibility of the physician. Occasionally, you know, a physician, maybe somebody who's new at it or just wanted extra support would say, be here with me. But often we would orchestrate, you know, I wouldn't convey the the news, you know, directly, but I would be there in the presence of the family um, to support them however they needed to support get that support at that moment and beyond. But we would certainly be there. So like I said, and that's what, and I think there's an important distinction because sometimes social workers, I do think, get asked to handle up some, handle some of that stuff. We also get handle, asked to handle, for lack of a better way to describe this, uh, sometimes we would be asked to come clean up, quote unquote, mm. which means that the communication was made, however that was made to the families, and then they would be distraught, understandably so. And then we would get the call afterwards that said, you know, we've got a really you know, difficult situation. Can you come help us now that we've conveyed this information? Mm-hmm. In my mind, that's not an ideal way to do it, particularly when you know it's going to be a difficult conversation. So to be present with them, first of all, it's great to know them before these things happen, if you can. Yeah. So that you work with them and then they trust you and, and you come to speak with them. You know, there is, what was it? There's a, I can't remember the book, so forgive me. But there was this book that talked about the, the presence of a social worker before the social worker even opened their mouth. The person knew that it was bad news and they were coming to convey it. And so I've always kept that in my mind. I think that was Joan Didion's book that came out a few years ago about her experience with loss. So that's always stuck with me as well. Like we should be there for more than just 
those moments, but sometimes that's not helped. There's nothing which we can do about that, particularly when you work in the ER or you work in a, in a ICU situation. Okay. All right. Yeah, I've always thought about, like, man, that would be, you know, that had to be tough. Mm-hmm. Like, I think about, you know, things like, uh, I remember before uh, I, like, like earlier, earlier in my like social work education, um, I was mm-hmm. thinking like, oh man, you know, I could definitely be a hospice social worker. I could do yeah. that because I have like mm-hmm. the, you know, but I thought I had like the, you know, like the kind of like um, feelings of a person who could just kind of go and just deal with sure. that stuff. But mm-hmm. as I've gotten older, <laughs> and like right. I've had a, a daughter, and she kind of opened mm-hmm. up in like a different kind of emotional portal for me. It's like, I don't know if I can do hospice anymore. Like, right. <laughs> I don't know. It would just mm-hmm. be, it would just be tough. So, so yeah. So people who do like hospital social work and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I definitely have a lot of respect, a lot of respect mm-hmm. for that. Cause it's something that I couldn't really, I don't think I can handle it. Well, I think you make, you make a good point about where we are in our life when these opportunities come up to do this kind of work. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned ER at our particular hospital, for example, we didn't actually have social work presence there until not that long ago. And I was brought in to pilot it, mm-hmm. or at least I, I wasn't, I, I said, yeah, I'll be happy to pilot that. That's something I think we need down there. And then it was successful. And then I was offered the opportunity to cover the shifts that they had down there, which if you're a nurse at a hospital like that, it, they're usually 12 hours and they're usually 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Yeah. And even then, I was in my mid-30s. I'm like, I don't think I can do a 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> that is that is asking a bit. And I already covered a number. I covered a couple pages. Like I said, I covered the uh, organ donor, and I also covered the sexual assault uh, response team pager for the ER, which was pretty heady stuff in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But I think that we should be able to do that work. Um, but I think the self-care piece has to be built in institutionally for us to do it. Mm-hmm. The way I think we can do it right, which is to say, uh, you know, I can't cover, you know, too many of these shifts all at once or I can't cover something right after having covered something else. You know, in, in, a, in a good situation, we have the support we need, but also the time away from it. Yeah. And the culture behind that, particularly the time that I was in the ICU, the culture was interesting <sighs> because I feel like there were definitely those members of the medical team who didn't see the need for that type of self-care. I didn't see the need for that type of self-reflection yeah. um, because it's not a part of the medical culture. And mm-hmm. I haven't been in that environment for a number of years, so I can't say it's how it is right now, but it certainly wouldn't surprise me if it still was. Yeah. Yeah, uh, there's definitely some, uh, yeah, there's definitely some uh, dynamics that clash, you know, still. Mm-hmm. But yeah, trying to, people are to get more aware, I want to say, at least, at least at the place uh, I work at, you know. Uh, so um, now you're an educator, yeah, for social yeah. work, uh, clinical social work. Is that what you, is that what like? Uh, yeah, yeah, clinical social work. I think when you see that in a in an academic environment, it should reflect the person's background and experience, having some sort of parallel along with those. When you think of somebody who's a who's a, you know, for lack of a better term, a research professor on the tenure track, or they're getting tenured. Um, like I said, they may not necessarily have as much exposure to practice, but that isn't to suggest they don't have it. Mm-hmm. And conversely, once you once I've been in this role for a number of years, I'm further and further away from my practice foothold. I try to keep a little bit of that in going just because I believe it's important for clinical faculty to have that. But the reason I got this position actually is because we at the School of Social Work here at University of Iowa 
wanted to expand our uh, distance education model to include online education and hybrid education. Mm-hmm. And I had some experience working with that while I was at the hospital because I chaired the education committee there, planned for uh, education sessions so people could get their continuing ed. And yeah. because like because we had, we had people who couldn't make it to those sessions during the day, you know, they were asking, "Hey, can we record these on cassette tape or something and watch them later?" You know, even even 20 years ago, that didn't seem like the most practical way to do it. So I was able to build a model so they could stream it, get their CEUs that way. Mm. And that helped. And that, that's something where I realized, oh, this is actually a whole area of focus for social workers to connect with people from a distance. And so in Iowa, it's a need yeah. for practice as well as education because half our state is very rural on the western side. So uh, we try to reach students out that direction who would otherwise have to kind of move to Iowa City, which is a big deal. If you've been in Iowa and you're living in a Western, like, I don't want to move four hours away to go to school. How does Mm -hmm. that work? So we try to address that. Okay. So, yeah, because, yeah. So, like, is it like an online curriculum or is it just like, like, is that an option or is it like you you are in the curriculum and you, so, what what I'm trying to say. So, like, is it like, is, is it a curriculum that, that requires you to to come on the campus, but it it has like special ex- exceptions if if you can't, or is it strictly online? Yeah, good question. Actually, because we throw these terms around so much that they have implicit meaning. So, so historically, as you know, uh, most you know, programs are on the ground. Mm-hmm. When I go to a program, you go to the program. University of Iowa School of Social Work is no different. And then, uh, you know, half a century ago, this is where I take a lot of pride in this, because we knew that we needed social workers trained and uh, educated throughout the state, we have an on-the-ground yet distance model. So Iowa City is on the east side of the state. We have a center in the middle of the state in our capital of Des Moines. And then we have two other part-time centers on both sides of the state. And just for reference, it takes about four and a half, five hours to drive across Iowa. If you're on Interstate 80, it takes about, you know, that long to mm-hmm. drive from one end to the other. So it's a, you know, it, it takes me longer to drive through Iowa than it takes me to drive to Chicago sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so just as a frame of reference. So yeah. we have on the ground programs there and we literally used to fly people uh, to teach at these programs back when we had that option. Mm-hmm. Um, then technology caught up. Uh, the internet caught up a number of years ago. We started building hybrid models, but we didn't have a formal online program until just two years ago. So that program is almost entirely online. We use an existing curriculum and it's all the same people that teach everything else in our program. Yeah. Uh, and then we just, uh, we have them all gather. We have all of our students gather in one of our centers for Institute every summer so that they have that contact with each other. Okay. Um, so that's how we do it. So it's essentially hybrid, but it's, dominantly online okay what's uh your favorite part about being a, a, a professor uh what my favorite part is yeah. it's actually you know this this is something that like i said earlier i didn't actually think about it because i didn't think i had the means to become one mm-hmm. um so it's great to be able to work with people at this level like have interactions all over the country uh with people through twitter you know you talk about those twitter threads that just take on a life of their own and yeah like you're just talking about coffee or things like that. <laughs> you know, yeah. know and, and uh, but sometimes we, the, the discussions are, are about other things and I find Twitter to be kind of a mixed bag in a lot of ways because on the one hand I enjoy the connections on the other hand 
can be very difficult sometimes to get out there and really have a, a really uh, good discussion, but it's a great place to at least connect mm-hmm. with people so that should you continue that discussion or partner, um, I've been able to partner with people, um, say, from uh, Chicago and uh, from the East Coast, like uh, Mathia Marquardt over, in East, uh, over at Columbia, for example, and and uh, Melissa Thompson over in, uh, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. It's great to work with them. And I think those connections were made in part because of how we've been able to connect on Twitter. So does that have anything to do with being a professor? Well, it facilitates that for sure. Yeah. Because I'm really working with great people. Not to say that if I were a clinician just working locally, there are great people locally, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But it's really exciting to see this aspect of the work that we're doing. And I think people who downplay social media are missing out on the professional networking that is very much available uh, to them. And yes, yeah, sometimes facts. Twitter is a total... Twitter is a total cesspool sometimes. Mm-hmm. Not a place to have all the great conversations, but it, it it's you got to harness it and make it meaningful. And uh, yeah, that's where you find some. And and you know what? The criticisms and the critiques and the calling out, all of that has a place. Yeah. And you know, I've definitely learned some things with my engagements on Twitter. I know I will continue to do that. I will continue to make mistakes mm-hmm. there as well. It's, yeah. It's 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 another tool. Yeah. That's true. Another another way to get information. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, how did so how did you like use like social like your practical social work skills and like and being an educator, like 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 where do those kind of transfer? So they, it, it's a good point too because uh, it's a good question because I enjoy the parts of my job that I really enjoy are when I'm teaching stuff that's straight out of the practice area. So I've been I've had the opportunity to teach a course on healthcare, social work in healthcare settings. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of just personal experience, professional experience I can bring in for case scenarios um, and have discussions about that in the classroom so that students are like, yeah, I get it. You are somebody who's done this work. Uh, you've got this background. So that's been very helpful. Yeah. And uh, I got actually... I actually was teaching as an adjunct since 2005. I wasn't formally hired until 2012. Mm-hmm. But I've been teaching, a, a, I co-instructed a course on family violence for almost 10 years. And that came out of working with adults uh, in the psychiatric unit where we worked with a lot of uh, dependent adult cases of abuse and neglect, which mm-hmm. is really hard. And in Iowa, we have a hard time serving those folks. Uh, just, and I think it's the fact of the matter is that's true all over the country. Um, because of limitations and resources. So we're trying to do the best we can. And so while the, all of that is challenging, it's actually helpful to come into a classroom and speak to those challenges and explain why social work is so important and why we have a role ethically in making sure that we're doing the best work that we can. Uh, when we talk about intervening on very difficult cases involving things, involving people who are who may meet the criteria for a dependent adult, mm-hmm. uh, abuse and neglect. And those are very challenging cases. So I feel... Yes, it's the fact that we live in a world where those things are happening is very difficult, but I feel at least like I have a responsibility to, to draw upon that knowledge and share it in the classroom. So that's rewarding in and of itself. Okay. Sweet. Yeah. Um, so I often think about this. Uh, how do professors feel like, you know, you want social work students but you know the price of education yeah. in the student loan crisis is crazy. Yeah. But you want social work students, right? So how do like you know? Is there like any kind of like t- 
like especially a professor, you know, who, who you know, you, you're you're probably a little older than I am, you know. So when you were going to college, it probably wasn't, you know, I'm not, I can't assume anything, but I, but I have, yep. you know, a pretty good feeling that when you were going to college, it was a whole lot cheaper than when I was than than I just oh, yeah. than I just completed my uh, master's two years ago. So, so coming from like that kind of generation. And you mm-hmm. teaching this new generation, you know it's going to be an uphill battle, you know, uh, with these student loans and all that stuff, and you know, yeah. being social work. How do you kind of like, maybe like uh, stay grounded and not really like be jaded, you know, like you know when you're dealing right. with these students. So a couple things about that. You're absolutely right on that too. And there are levels that I think professors should be engaging in. One is understand that students are struggling, that it's expensive to the degree that we never used to think of. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I mean, I'll confess, I'm still paying off my under, my grad students' loans, but they're not, not they're nothing compared to what people are facing now. Yeah. They, they just aren't. Um, it's interesting. We, we first of all see there's, there's, there are some resources out there. They're patchwork in nature. So whenever we see a, a, a potential, whenever we have a new, uh, opportunity for tuition support, whether it's through a grant or uh, it's through anything that all that we can offer our students. We try to make the students know as soon as possible, let them know this is how you apply for it. This is money on the table. You should go for it. Mm-hmm. One thing I've noticed is that students are so busy that they don't always get that information. And we can't just say, well, if you missed it, you missed it. We really have, I think as professors, if we know that there is a resource out there that they can use, they should be, we should be pointing them in the direction, advising them during our advising sessions, let them know these are the things that you really should do to help mitigate this. At a macro level, uh, a couple of things. I mean, something, something will, I think higher education is changing. I mean, if you look around right now, it's not a pretty picture. Mm-hmm. That's, 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 I think, is the outcome of some of the things that we relied on all these years. In Iowa, it's no exception. Iowa has got a lot, we have a lot of um, small private colleges all over this rural state and yeah. they're either struggling or they're not. We have a lot of them that are struggling. So that's a, that's a harbinger for how things are looking in the future. And the fact of the matter is that the students can't afford it. They're not going to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just not going to be able to come. So there's, there's a reckoning there. Anyway, the macro focus should be what can we do to get more support from the top? <coughs> We've got this whole thing about... You know, we all talked about you know, loan forgiveness for years and years, and that we're, you know, we've been, as we've been known for, as we've been aware of for a few years now, that's, you know, non-existent. Yeah. You know, the loan, the loan forgiveness only, you know, at the federal level only seems to impact a fraction of 1%. Or yeah, they said 99% of people that apply don't, don't get, yeah. don't get it. <laughs> that, that, that isn't just that that's wrong. The whole model for this has to change if this is, if we're going to persevere. And... So that we need to be able to provide more support for more people if we value this education that we're giving. Yeah. I mean, I think the real fact of the matter is something will change and it won't necessarily change at the higher education level. It'll change at some other interpretation of practice. Like maybe we don't need licensed social workers at this level. Maybe, maybe we need somebody to do it at a different space because what's the practicality of that? It becomes this sort of classed out thing where only the wealthy or the people with the access to the resources can get the social work degree. It's totally antithetical and ethical to mm-hmm. <laughs> barely pronounce words today. It goes against social work ethics. Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> I feel you. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'm, so I'm, do I have solutions? My solutions happen to be just that needs to change from the top down. Yeah. It just absolutely has to, uh, so that students can afford it. I mean, I would like to say here, that I, the model of the, the, the way that states used to provide support for 
uh, the public colleges, like at the public universities, like the one I work at, mm-hmm. you know, it's a much different, it, it, that, that number continues to kind of slowly progress to zero. Yeah. And that's a meaningful thing that we have to be very, we can't assume that anything is going to happen. And in Iowa, you know, in particular, 2026 is coming. That's often seen as the big cliff, uh, where we see a major drop off in enrollment. And that mm-hmm. isn't just at Iowa. That's all over the place. So that's what I think that, that's going to force, that's going to force some change. And as a social worker, I don't know. There's a whole, we could have a long discussion about (laughs) what is the investment in higher education towards social work in the practice. Uh, I don't want to leave this podcast without saying, I believe it's an important relationship. I think it's great and important that we have social workers trained and educated at this level so that they're going out there and practicing in an ethical place. Yeah. But how do we do that? I mean, just that model will change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, people people always say like, you know, you know, get a scholarship if you don't want student loans. But the problem with that is that there's not. All that, I mean, everybody can't get a scholarship. No. So right. absolutely. So so basically, what you're telling me is that you got to be either super wealthy or super mm-hmm. smart to get higher right. education. You know, and that to or, me. Or, oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I was going to say super wealthy or super connected. Yes. Um, if you look at the, the, you know, what we keep hearing is that the top tier colleges like Yale, Harvard, they're not going to be affected by this, but they have a whole system that is just mind blowing. Basically, you know, you could be the most qualified student and they still have to make a choice that wouldn't be you mm-hmm. uh, because of the way that their models are. I mean, that's a higher education model that, you know, from the business perspective is great, but from the equity perspective, not so great. Yeah. Uh, because I can't expect people to go there. And, all, and it, it, interestingly enough, you know, when we talk to students here in Iowa and we try to get them ready for social work, they we have students who would be great social workers and they look at University of Iowa, not as an expense, but rather as like, that's a Harvard to me. Like, yeah. I don't know if I can get into that. Mm-hmm. And then they discover they can, but by the time that they discover they have the intellect, they don't have the means. Yeah. And that's a huge disconnection. We can't, we can't thrive. We can't let that go. We have to work with that since... We have great people out there who can do this work, and we're missing out because they can't go through the system that provides them for it, yeah. the education for it. Yeah, that's unfortunate, you know. So I did, and I cut you off on that too, but I just wanted to grab that point because yeah. it's, it's a huge issue with higher education in general. Yeah, and the point I was just going to make was like, you know, um, there's you're going to have a lack of equity if you're only like if you're only making space for connected, wealthy, mm-hmm. and super smart. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like mm-hmm. that's that's just that's just is not feasible. Like like especially if you're going into social work or teaching or something like yeah. that, to where like you need a person who has like a, a diverse worldview. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I'm saying those people uh, at the top can't have that worldview. But but mm-hmm. if you only if that's if, you're, if that's your only pool, then you're just, mm-hmm. you're just cutting you're just cutting down qualifications or qualified people. You know so. Right. I mean, and this is the thing about, you know, diversity, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, the idea, well, we've got to bring more people into the table and include them. Uh, but that's, that's not going to fit with the existing model that we do this, like you just described. It's the mm-hmm. super wealthy, the super smart, super connected. How does that fit with people who are smart, but not connected or smart, but not wealthy, or could be, you know, and, and, and by the way, too, there was a great tweet that came out I mean, just on Twitter just recently about, like this disconnection between GPA and undergrad and success in higher education after the fact. Mm-hmm. And that's another benchmark that perhaps we need to look closer at because, you know, yeah, maybe this person got something that was like 2.9. 
you know, maybe how do we give them resources? Because they can obviously demonstrate the skills as they live their life more. It's like we teach human behavior in the social environment, but we teach human development. We know that people get better with understanding the world around them uh, as they get older. And so how do we take advantage of that? Yeah. How do, we, how do we support people? Not just take advantage. I guess that's not the right phrase, but how do we support people uh, as they can make that connection? Like I made the connection to social work in my late 20s, and that felt like, well, it seems like you're kind of slow to figure this one out. <laughs> you know, people in their 30s or early 40s or whenever make that connection. Like I can, I can, give, uh, I can give back. I can do this work and I can do it really well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I made that connection in my mid. Well, I think I was like 22, and I was like, I kind of, I think mm-hmm. I can figure this out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, you mentioned macro, and mm-hmm. for people that don't know, macro social work is a thing. Um, yes. uh, and I'm not gonna lie, I really don't have a lot of faith in macro social work. Uh, I had a job that was macro social work for the school district and having to fight all the politics and mm-hmm. all the moving parts, man, it just really, it just, at the end of the day, it just kicked my ass, right. you know? So, but you are someone who has a podcast called macro social work. Am I correct? Right. Yeah. And, it's a little confusing. Yeah. But yeah. Macro SW. Yeah. So, and then, so, so I'm assuming you are a person who are very involved in, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, it's macros your thing. So Yeah, I, I, I emphasize it. I should say that, interestingly enough, I didn't think of myself as macro-focused until after I worked in the hospital environment for a while and found myself being a little more engaged with, you know, I, I walked in there thinking I'm going to work with people on, a, on an individual group basis or family basis. Mm-hmm. But a lot of my work almost immediately became how do we find these resources so that this person can go forth and get, say, the rehab they need? Yeah. Or how can the family come together and coalesce around this person's need? Or how can we let this person, how can we meet this person's request so they can die the way they want to die? Yeah. And those aren't necessarily all personal choices. A lot of stuff has to come together for that. So I gravitated towards this perspective that we work, we, we, we work across the center, you know, we work across the points. So social workers are often engaged across the whole thing. It's just where do they accentuate their efforts? Mm-hmm. And I wound up leaving that area feeling like I was accentuating more macro stuff than anything else. So like, and, and, and we could look at that and go, well, that's more meso macro. And that's a fair, that's a fair discussion to have, but I endorse and really want people to focus on macro. That's how I got invited to the macro SW hashtag macro SW group. Mm-hmm. Um, because of that interest that I had and that way to connect with it. For me, it was all about like, you know, this was, this is, we're in the era of the, uh, of healthcare access and how controversial that is and how people have all sorts of understandings and misunderstandings about how healthcare even works. And I realized this is a macro issue. Mm-hmm. People have a very wide variety of understandings about how one accesses and gets healthcare. There's a lot of inequity. People sometimes think the inequity is, is inevitable and you just got to go with it didn't do this at one point in your life you don't deserve to survive at another part of your life it's amazing to me how people were like that yeah um just really briefly how i how i came to think about that that is every time somebody came into the icu and they were facing a major trauma and i was talking to families there wasn't a single family or a single patient who said well i didn't really prepare for this and i didn't set aside the money for it so i'll just have to deal with the way life turns you know this is just the way it is if i don't make it through the week i guess i don't because that's the way it you know 
I never had that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I never had it. People always said, what can we do now? There's got to, you know, and it's fascinating to me, got to be something, right? There's got to be something we can do. Yeah. There's got to be a program we can hop on, you know, or, you know, I can't, I can't, I don't know what we're going to do for income because he was the only owner. She was the only income provider. And I don't mm. know what to do about that. Nobody ever just said, well, fates, or the fates will now dictate the next step. No, people wanted to have control. Yeah. What were the next step? And to me, that really spoke to what is it? What is our understanding about the world around us at that level? Mm-hmm. That's how I got into it. Okay. Yeah. So just kind of seeing that our system needs overhaul, you know. It's fascinating because people and this, and we could we could speak to this from a perspective of race and how people looked at it. Like I, I would say that, you know, I worked with a number of families who identify as white, and they're like. What do you mean? I've always had the things I've, mm-hmm. I've always had the things I needed. You know, why isn't the system working to my benefit at this point? And it wasn't that. I guess I should say that it wasn't so much. I guess what I'm saying is they just always assume the system is going to work for them. Yeah, and I was sitting before them saying this system right now. These are your choices, and none of them are really great. And mm-hmm. that's where we're at. And there's and it's no fault of yours. Yeah, and that was an eye opener for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, how did so how do you like fight the uphill battle of like system changing the system? Like like how do you prepare for like you know how do you get your armor ready to go and you know kind of uh you know go into these boardrooms where people don't give two shits about you know like right. your ethics or you know what you got going on? It's like hey, the bottom line is this: we need money or we need X Y Z, and what you're right. talking about, we can say that for later. Yeah, that actually came up when I was a when I, when I was in hospital social work. The idea of you know the pressure over the course of my time there was more and more. Let's get this patient out of, out as soon as we possibly can. Mm. It's all about the system of opportunity days, because Medicare is such a big payer for hospitals. So the idea that for every person that comes in, there's a there's a DRG diagnosis and they get paid a the hospitals reimbursed a certain amount. But they always get that same amount. So if a person was in for 10 days, they get the same as a person that was in for one day. So the hospitals you know, naturally figured out that the more one day or two days you get over the course of time, the better for your overall mm-hmm. system as a, as a whole. So you'd have to, I'd have to fight a lot of the time to say, look, I, you know, it's really difficult. I know I have to tell you there's no place I can put this person. And, there's no, and we have to make other choices first. And by the way, the family's not even there yet. And we have to work for them. So it was a combination of saying to the system at large, we need to do this for the family here at this other point, this micro point, yeah. uh, because they're not ready for the conversation you want us to have yet, or they may want to try other things first. Okay. And those are the battles I felt like were the most, the most difficult sometimes, just because, you know, at administrators, like my job is this, <laughs> your yeah. job is this. We're not coming together on this one. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. So that was the real struggle. Probably why I'm, I mean, to be perfectly blunt, probably why I'm not still there. Yeah. And I, I have confessed that if I, you know, leaving there was probably partly due to the fact, yes, I had this opportunity to move into this new realm of education, but it also meant a different, a, do, a new thing to do. Yeah. And at the very least, being able to look back, stay on top of what's going on in the system, talk, you know, working with students who are in placement. I did field instruction for most of my time there. So I had students in the field with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was part of it, um, kind of getting them ready to wrap their minds around what it was, what it meant to be in this environment and working with families at this level. Yeah. Um, so that, I mean, did I steal myself up? You bet. I mean, <laughs> you had to talk to families who didn't want to hear the news you had to give them. 
talk to administration about the news they don't want to hear. Like this person's not ready to go yet. Yeah. I can't move a patient out of here. There's no place for patients going to go yet. They're still on this machine or they're still doing this or they're complicated or, Hey, they don't have insurance. And that was another thing. We had a lot of administration who didn't exactly understand that healthcare insurance didn't pass along. Nobody outside the hospital is going to take the burden on that. We have to take up rehab center. doesn't have to say yes to somebody on the grounds that, you know, this person doesn't pay her. We can't take them. That's another big broken piece of the system that we have as a whole in this country. Mm-hmm. That you can't get people connected even when they're ready to go because they just don't have the insurance to go there. Yeah. And you're doing your best you can to put it together. And that was a constant <sighs> conversation. Had to have that conversation over and over and over again. And it was, it was uh, you know, how do you, <laughs> how do you, you have to protect yourself. You have to take those weekends off and completely turn away. Like, I mean, I know the compartmentalization is not always the best uh, practice, but sometimes that's what I had to do. It's like I can't, I can't think about this for forty-eight hours. Yeah, someone else can pick it up. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the best way because it is a fight trying to mm-hmm. trying to um, you know uh, change change people at the top uh, or not even change them, just kind of change how how the system is yeah. working and trying to uh, decrease you know the uh, the some of the. Mm-hmm inefficiencies and you know stuff that we mm-hmm. that that happens and you know just it's human nature really um because but i feel like before we really like well i, I like we always kind of knew that the system wasn't really like the mm-hmm. best you know as far right. as like you know outcome and our caring about outcome you know like you know but i feel like with just the Twitter and the social media and the news, or mm-hmm. just a kind of twenty-four-hour news cycle. We're really seeing that, like thing, like the way stuff has been set up, yeah. w- was never like it, with wellness in mind. You know, no, like, no. Well, that's the sickness. Yeah, yeah. At least that's, the sickness in mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least that's what you know. That's what it seems like, anyway. But so um, the hashtag social work SW Tech. Yeah, that is a huge one. That is, uh, yes, is. that's one that I, I've, I've, I, I, there's an old the old dean of my school of social work. She's a big part of that. Um, and um, I actually was in a full online program. You know, uh, my program was online three years online. Um, mm-hmm. So um, how does so like what what is that movement about? The hashtag SW Tech. Uh, well, I think if you think of it as a movement, it's just the idea fundamentally that social workers are, c- can be and should be technology savvy, technology mm-hmm. aware. Uh, as you know, the, co- the Code of Ethics, the NSW Code of Ethics was just recently updated. And a lot of that up- those updates center around understanding tech in practice, whether you're doing uh, one-on-one counseling or therapy how do you keep your notes safe? How do you keep your, your client protected? Um, how do you connect with your client if you're going to connect with them by means other than face-to-face in real life environments, things like that? Okay. All the way to futurism and where are we going in the world as a whole? So like uh, Dr. Laura Nissen, who just, who just, who's over at, uh, I want to say Portland. Yeah, that's my, that was, that's the dean. That's the, that's, that's the dean you're talking about. <laughs> yep. She, um, she writes a lot about futures, and I've had the uh, privilege of meeting her a couple of times and very grateful because I really admire her work. Uh, and she talks about this. She's on Twitter a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, and she does the right, she does this thing that I love on Twitter, which is like, hey, I read this amazing article. Check this out. Or, hey, I, wrote, I read this or I wrote this. What do you think? And uh, I really appreciate that. And 
you know, so where are we going in the world? So where, what does it mean when we have people engaging in talk therapy or not talk therapy? I'm thinking about therapy on text, you know, like, oh, it's 2.30 on a Sunday and I got to talk to somebody. Yeah. And I'm going to text them out because we're learning that people who are younger don't always go for this face-to-face phone call, mm-hmm. face-to-face in real life thing. They, they prefer other forms of communication. Where does social workers stand on that? And historically, social workers have said, no, you know, we don't, that is not yeah. pure social work, quote unquote. But that's privileging a kind of practice based on nothing more than just one's own comfort, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Yeah. And I think the data is out there to su- suggest that we have every, we need to be aware of how people are connecting um, for things like that. Uh, Dr. Nissen shares things like, uh, you know, think about intake being done by automation. Like you're talking to a, you know, a virtual reality human being to assess some of the key things about you as you as you get evaluated and, and then go from there. Yeah. Um, she shared an article about that recently. I think we need to be very, very aware of that from a from a social work perspective. So when I think of hashtag social work tech or SW tech, that's a lot of it, is all of these things because. I don't think I know anybody right now who doesn't use some form of tech every day, anyway, mm-hmm. whether it be their cell phone, doing what you and I are doing right now, or in some other form. You know, it's so it's the norm. It's very much the norm. So yeah. Social work can't. We can't pretend that we aren't a part of this environment that has this stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to use it if it's out there. You know, yeah. especially yeah, like you make a good point with the younger kids. You know, if you have younger kids, uh, I know I would. There would be times where I would call uh, young young people and try to like set up appointments and I would never get a I would never get an answer but I would text them yeah. and 20 seconds later yep. <laughs> they're like oh yeah. yeah yeah we can do that <laughs> so yeah that is yeah I, I have a niece who, who uh, <laughs> it's like educated me on this because I remember I don't know I mean again I'm a little older and we actually had to take like we actually had lessons in grade school about phone call how do you, how do you pick up a phone Hello, my name is blah de blah. I'd like to speak to so and so. And, you know, all of us had it. And then I have uh, people who are younger who, like, they call me and I'm like, hello. And they're like, hi. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know who this is, <laughs> but I guess I'm supposed to know. Uh, but it's because the data is on my phone. It's like, yeah. oh, this is who's calling, you know? So I should be looking at that. And it's just, it's a small nuance about the shift of things. And uh, I don't know if it was her that said this later, but somebody else said, yeah, I hate making phone calls. Yeah, <laughs> I it's so stressful. I'm like, I kind of get that. Yeah, and I, and I get what you're saying. I don't like it either. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was the same way. Like, t- like, like texting was like my was like my uh, was like my escape. Like, oh man, I ain't gotta. I don't have to uh, talk to you, you know, if I don't want to. I was like, this is cool, you know. But isn't it interesting how people got? They kind of feel comfortable that they, they just. Do you find that people that you talk to might go different places just by texting it out? Like they just like they they can communicate a little more close to the whatever it is they're going through um uh, like i yeah i think so well it depends i've i've like a i've i'm like in like a i'm kind of like in a middle generation where like 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 people i talk to still um like use phone frequently you talk on the phone and then like the people there are some people that i communicate with who are like younger and they do like they're just totally like tech so so it really depends yeah and this is just just basic communication choices, right? Like this is just like how do we how do we feel in that environment? Mm-hmm. And you think about like how, like I was just thinking about how hashtag social work tech, SW tech. If you look at like um, 
like Sean Erringer, he's he's on Twitter, mm-hmm. stuck on social work, stuck on I think it's stuck on SW. I I don't have it in front of me. Yeah, uh, but he he writes a lot about all this work in healthcare systems and how they how they work with technology. Melanie Sage uh, over at University of Buffalo, mm-hmm. writing about like or talking about uh, how AI is being used in things like child protection and so forth. Yeah. Um, I, and, I, and I have to confess, I think I see what she shares, so I don't know if everything is rooted in her work. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to attribute that to her work, but I believe it's an area of interest for her. Sorry, Melanie, if you're listening, I apologize for <laughs> not getting it quite right. I do point people toward you and uh, the work that you're doing, though, as, a, as, as somebody who is a, a leader in, this, in social work tech as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, you being, uh, you being a white male, how do you hold space for like things like um, conversations like equity, inclusion, equality, privilege, all the you know all the all the all the challenges that as social workers we we have to kind of fight and go through and, and hold space for others for. So so you're asking how do I how do I hold the space to make room for those conversations or make sure yeah how do I have those conversations yes yeah I mean it's a it's absolutely. It's a really good question. And it's every day that I think, oh, I might be doing this right, there's always room. Right? Mm-hmm. There's always room for more. And I teach human behavior in the social environment. And I, early days of teaching that course, I would come in and like, okay, we're going to talk about feminism today. And I apologize. I don't feel right talking about mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> my role. So, But then I realized maybe that's not what instructors are supposed to be doing. Maybe not, I'm not supposed to be up here professing the truth. I'm up here to facilitate the discussion, create the you know, create the space for it, mm-hmm. and make sure that people aren't um, in, in our classroom, that people are able to have those really, you know, there's a difference, right? There's safe spaces, and then there are brave spaces. And this is a distinction that I think is really important because if it was a safe space, we just don't make we just don't make room for difficult conversations. Yeah, we just sort of we just sort of wink, nudge, and move along. But a brave space is the environment where it's on the professor to create the space so that people can have that discussion, engage in those things, and learn with without having to hold back, but at the same time being able to go there. And roughly in any given year, about ninety eight percent of my classroom is going to identify as as a woman and not a man necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's also, you know, not counting the fact that I'm cisgender, a cisgender identifying male. Mm-hmm. And so I really have to be, first of all, highly self-aware of the biases that I'm bringing to the classroom. And I may think I've got it under control, but there's always a bias. There's always, it's always a trace mm-hmm. or beyond a trace of that. So I have to be very aware of how I'm thinking of the world around me and how I interpret that as I go into, to have a discussion about social work in any in any, in any environment. Yeah. Um, so I, the best I can do is to say, like, I go back to that reference about having difficult conversations on Twitter. Not my favorite thing, but being called out happens and being aware of what it means to go through that is important. And I think the natural tendency for me early was to get really defensive about that. What do you mean? I don't know. Mm -hmm. You don't know me. Yeah. Well, that's not really the point, is it? You know, we're actually trying to get at something beyond what you think about you. Yeah. And so over the years, I've really worked on to make sure that that natural tendency, uh, because I do carry around that privilege of like, no one's going to challenge me. You know, I should just be seen as an authority because I'm in this role. Mm-hmm. And I, ha- I know it's taken some work to let go of a lot of that and understand that this is, this is, you're just merely facilitating. 
you have to do a good job with that. You have to be able to allow people to make sure that they're being uh, given that opportunity yeah. in your classrooms or in the field. Again, I, I want to make sure I'm answering your question because it's, it, it's for me, it's something I wrestle with all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, am I there? Am I, am I, and you know, I remember a, a, a faculty of color was working with me a few years ago and she said like, yeah, I got to make sure these students are doing the work. And I really, I used, I know the phrase doing the work. There's a whole podcast right? yeah, <laughs> yeah. called doing the work. And I love the phrase, but I'm like, hold it. Am I doing it? I don't know. I have to, let me, let me go back and work on that. I, mm-hmm. I presume I'm doing that, but there's a whole lot of stuff under that phrase of doing the work. So it's, and I think that fundamentally here for this conversation, it's constantly self-educating, constantly making sure that I'm evaluating where I'm at in this world and what privileges I'm, I'm accentuating and what things I take for granted and how that's different. Way back at the beginning of our discussion, I talked about being in Japan. The reason that was a, that was the founding experience for me um, was because I was, that was my first ever time being out of uh, one environment where I'm, the dominant everything to being the non-dominant everything. Mm-hmm. And I talk about that as being a lab. It's not as if I felt, you know, there were tough days there, but it was a lab. I could leave it. And I did after yeah. three years, I left that space, but it was worth it to have that experience <clears throat> away from um, all the things that I took for granted, at least for three years. And, and that's what founded, that's what sort of laid the groundwork for my social work career and study and education mm-hmm. okay yeah well you know i mean yeah that's i mean that was it's a good answer you know um i, just feel, <laughs> I, just feel, I appreciate that <laughs> well you know it, it, it is a hard question to answer you know i think mm-hmm. the, the only way you can answer it is like say you know um i'm gonna make mistakes i'm open Absolutely. i'm self-aware you know because that's one thing I, that i learned um and um grad school was you know how how just being um you know just just being able bodied cisgendered um mm-hmm. was a privilege you know yeah. because yeah I, yeah I am a black male and we and those that's a struggle right there in some aspects but then like but then even amongst my race me me being a male was like you know, I'm, I'm I'm already you know like I already have a hands up on things you know, and then they being yeah. cisgendered and you know like not mm-hmm. you know just just you know presenting masculine you know, mm-hmm. um, and 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 identifying as a male you know being cisgender is just mm-hmm. yeah you have a lot of privilege in that and you should be aware mm-hmm. how you show up when you when you're in spaces that don't look like how you like how you look you know. I, I agree. I, I, have, I should put a plug in real quick for the National Coalition Building Institute, which is something that our, our university has a chapter. And I think they're at NC, I think it's ncbi.org. Yeah. And we, I went through that training and then I went through the train the trainer so that I could work with our students coming in. And the whole idea is to break these things down a little bit so that mm-hmm. people have a, a larger sense of who they are and the things that they take advantage of in their own space when they're with other people. And I learned a lot and I continue to, um, through that, uh, the national coalition building Institute. And they speak about the very same things you just said. And this is, I should say that none of this takes away from the fact that, look, I like being who I am, you know, I like being man, I like being this place, but I also love the fact that I can make mistakes Mm -hmm. and the idea that I can learn from them rather than recoil from them. Um, because I'm going to make them. Uh, you can talk to me in a year and I can give you a list of all the things I did that I learned from. 
And I, rather than feel like, oh, well, that's terrible, I should say, no, it's actually, it's a good thing because it, it's bringing me closer to this sort of larger context of the world around me and all the people in it. So yeah. that's, that's what I have to say about that is that, yeah, I've con- <laughs> that it is an ongoing process. It is very much an ongoing process. Yeah, that's true. Definitely true. Yeah, because I thought I was like, you know, the most <clears throat> open-minded person until I did this mm-hmm. one assignment in grad school. And I was like, damn, it was, it was really like, it was really um, eye-opening, you know? Yeah, so, uh, yeah. How do you um, take care of yourself? You know, how do you, what kind of things do you do for self-care? Yeah, good. I talk about this, I actually presented on this. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm not always the best practitioner. Mm. I I do like physically moving around. I used to run, actually, uh, for at least a moment. But as I got older, my body was like, no, you, you shouldn't run as much. Yeah. <laughs> as and it's like, this is fun, but your foot's starting to hurt. And you got this other thing. So be careful out there. You're almost 50. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not, that's, <laughs> there are definitely people who are much older who are doing a great job. Uh, exercise is great. Um, I love actively listening to music i think a lot of us listen to music very in in a very multi-test environment because music is easy to access yeah we remember once upon a time you had to make action you had to like put a record on yeah (laughs) and uh that meant deliberate action of some type and just listening to music and doing nothing else or at least keeping your other actions kind of limited that for me is a kind of self-care because you get to move into that space and listen. Yeah. I do that with music. I do that with audiobooks. Um, I write brief audiobook reviews uh, for uh, Audiophile magazine, and that's for me. It's a lot of fun because nice. it gets to it puts me in places that I wouldn't otherwise be. And I like being in my headspace a lot. So as more of an introverted type. Okay. Cool. Well, I appreciate you for connecting with me. Uh, you know, uh, I I still am going on this campaign. I'm trying to come to as many yeah. college campuses as I can. Whoever wants me to show up, so you know. But uh, well, yeah, I'll see what we can do. We'll bring you on in. I've already got your sticker all over our our uh, University of Iowa School social workspace. Mm-hmm. Uh, was going to do this thing where I would shoot my video of myself slapping that sticker all over town here in Iowa City. <laughs> sort of do this, uh, I forget what kind of campaign you call that, um, but it's a, sort of like a kind of a information campaign, not a whisper campaign, but the idea that people start to see this, like, what is that? And your yeah. address is on there. So we'll see what we can do. Yes, sir. I appreciate uh, it. To, to connect you. Um, I know that just by following the model of yours and others, macrosw.com quick plug that we do have a brief we do a very brief podcast it captures the essence of our twitter chats and in the spring i'll be doing a more expanded interview type uh kind of like this and mm-hmm. so i may ask you if you'd like to be on that um, yes sir we're going to do it a lot we're going to do it with a live audience yeah uh, we hope so it'll be a it'll be a different flavor but sort of the same idea yeah if you want to send me the link i'll put it in our uh episode uh our, our episode uh, description Perfect. I can do that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, appreciate it. Uh, and me learning about, you know, everything that you do, you know, trying to, you know, build our, make our connection stronger. Well, I appreciate that so much. It's been a, it's been a privilege and, and uh, really enjoyable to chat with you as a fan of yours and following on Twitter, listening to your podcast. This, uh, 
little nervous today because it felt like a big deal. <laughs> so I was like very gracious. Uh, I'm so grateful for uh, this opportunity. Oh, man, no problem. I appreciate you for agreeing to it. <laughs> sure, thanks. All right, uh, I'll let you in a minute. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.